Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Extra Point Podcast. My name is Todd Stiles, and I'm one of the pastors at First Family Church. Really glad you've joined us for this episode as we look back uh, specifically at the first three chapters in the book of Job. In case you aren't aware, we did begin a new series Sunday. Uh, It's uh, entitled Why, and it's simply a very short but quite poignant series through the book of Job. We'll be analyzing in large chunks the five main sections of Job. And so Sunday, we spent our time just looking at the first three chapters, primarily verses 11 through 26 of chapter 3, where Job uses the word why seven times. Because we didn't get to really go verse by verse or look in detail at every single aspect of that of that chapter or even the first two, uh, we just made a brief reference to some things in there. I want to take some time in this episode to um, answer a few questions that I think you probably have. These didn't necessarily come in on our text line, uh, but I think these are general questions people have, and there are things that I, I think you ought to know, things that we ought to together um, process and get up under. There are some uh, words in those first two to three chapters that I think could cause some unintentional confusion, or perhaps they're just words, phrases, or concepts you've not heard before, I've not heard before. And so let's get our hands around them best we can uh, to make sure that uh, we are understanding the book as well as our theology in the best way possible. First of all, I think the one that most people ask is found in verse 6 of chapter 1, Uh, And it it involves the phrase, the sons of God. The text actually says, when the sons of God appeared uh, before Yahweh. So people wonder, like, well, Todd, who are the sons of God? I thought there was only one son of God. It's a good question. And actually, the phrase there is used multiple times in the Old Testament. Um, And it describes, the word is actually Elohim. It's a plural form. And it does mean sons of God. I think these are essentially created, supernatural, or you could use the word created divine beings. You could use the word angels. Um, I don't know if these are all good angels. This may just be a collective group of angels. Um, We know that there are fallen angels, and then there are angels that didn't fall, and they serve um, Christians or they serve saints. They're messengers. Uh, but regardless, I think what we have here is maybe basically a collective group of of um, created supernatural beings or angels, and they all do God's bidding. Now, let me explain a little more about these uh, sons of God because this could um, this is this is very intriguing, and I think it's helpful. But I want to warn you that it is. Uh, something that many of you may not be aware of. It may not be. It may be something you've not heard. But when they're all gathered together in this fashion, when you see the phrase "sons of God" in this way, and they're gathered around um, Yahweh or God Almighty, it does seem to represent what many call a divine council. You could use the word cabinet. You find this same phrase in Psalm 82. Um, You also find the idea of a council of holy ones in Psalm 89. There, of course, it's the council of the sons of God. And so there does seem to be a a type of hierarchy, um, and God allows, shall we say, this council of angels, in this case, I think, both good and bad, 
to come into his presence. When we say counsel, we don't mean that necessarily God gets advice, but it means that he has created these supernatural divine beings to do his bidding. I would urge you and encourage you to check out how God utilized this counsel in his dealings with King Ahab of the northern kingdom. You can find out more about this in 1 Kings chapter 22, but there you'll again see the concept of a divine counsel or of the sons of God, little s of course. And so that's what I believe is being referred to here is this uh, divine counsel, this cabinet, these created supernatural divine beings, uh, angels. They're another place they're called watchers, they're messengers, and they do God's bidding. He is no doubt the uh, supreme almighty one, often called the Lord of hosts. Now let me address a couple of things about this. This does not in any way affirm or give credence to polytheism. These are all created beings, and so they are inferior to and subject to God Almighty, who is eternal, uh, transcendent, and everlasting. Furthermore, the fact that there are sons of God, created supernatural divine beings who, who serve and do God's bidding, does not at all conflict with the fact that there is a Son of God who is not created. He's the second person of the Trinity. He has been with God and God since eternity past. That's what John 1 describes. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Uh, neither does this conflict with the Holy Spirit. So God is three in one. Christ is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, um, and in the biblical theological sense, they are God. God is one in three persons. And so each one is God. And so remember that, and keep in mind, the fact that there are other sons of God does not conflict uh, with the fact that there is one singular, only begotten Son of God, or one of a kind, and that's Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, doesn't conflict with that at all. So this idea of sons of God, a divine council, a cabinet that does appear before God, that comes into God's presence, does not conflict with a Trinitarian understanding of God, nor does it affirm or give credence to polytheism. So we would say um, it does not support in any way uh, extra gods on the same level with Yahweh or extra sons of God that are just like Jesus. But it does help us understand something, that there is a realm, uh, there is an area, an environment, we'll call it. There is a world of the supernatural that often is underplayed I admit to you at times it's overplayed, but I think to deny that this exists or to pretend that there's not an unseen realm, as Michael Heiser calls it, is uh, dangerous, it's not helpful, and neither is it spiritually healthy. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. It's true, and much is happening that we don't see, one of them being this a realm in which the sons of God appear before God Almighty, Yahweh. And um, their goal is to, at least some of these watchers or messengers or sons of God who are opposed to God, their goal is to destroy God's people, to uh, 
take them out, to make life difficult, to get them to uh, turn on God, to abandon the Lord. And this is what you see happening in Job, and I tend to think this is still occurring. And so be aware, uh, fellow Christian, that there is much going on that you don't see. And we should be on our knees in prayer. We should be vigilant and diligent. Our adversary, the devil, he does walk about looking for whom he can destroy. And he is the head or the highest ranking member of those fallen angels. And he is, in one sense, uh, part of that divine council because he was a created supernatural divine being once in heaven as the primary worship leader Um, a very high-ranking angel, but he thought he could be in God's place. This is Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And so he fell, and God judged him and about a third of all the angels that went with him. And so there's a lot happening in the unseen realm. I would encourage you, if you're up for a really hard but helpful read, and you're in for about maybe a month or more of some real challenging thinking, I would encourage you to pick up Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. It deals with much of these kinds of things. Uh, I would warn you that the uh, footnotes in the book are probably more in volume than the actual book, perhaps. They're smaller print, and many of the pages you're going to find the footnotes are longer than the actual uh, print of the book. So I, th- I think that's very intriguing. I like that kind of stuff. I think you uh, will as well. But it's called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. It's a tremendously helpful book in understanding more about the things that Job 1.6 references when the sons of God came to appear before Yahweh. So just keep that in mind. That's some helpful information about what that phrase means, who they are, and what they actually do. Another very intriguing um, uh, word that's used in Job 2 is the word insight, and it's actually used by God. God uses it in speaking to Satan on the second round of attacks. God actually says, um, have you seen Job? He did retain his integrity. He didn't fall away like you predicted he would when you took all of his stuff and attacked his wealth and, and took the life of his children he said he still retained his integrity, verse six, uh, excuse me, verse three says, even though you incited me against him. That's very intriguing, isn't it? In verse three there, where God says to Satan, You incited me. Now, the Bible also says that God's not tempted, and he doesn't tempt any man with evil. So this word incited makes us feel like God was tempted. And is that why he then gave in to Satan and allowed Satan to, um, you know, really come after Job and bring incredible adversity and suffering. No, I don't think that the Lord gave in to Satan. The Lord, uh, Yahweh wasn't tempted in the sense that, oh my, I, I might have to give in or I might, you know, do something morally wrong. That's not at all the sense of the word. I think what's happening here um, is that God is describing for us how Satan, and I might add here, there's a definite article in front of Satan in the Hebrew text, and so it's proper to say God is giving us the perspective from the Satan. Another way to say it would be the accuser. It doesn't sound weird when we say the accuser. It only sounds weird when we say the Satan, but technically those are the same words. And so when the accuser or when the Satan, or we can just say Satan, 
comes before God to accuse Job and to try to do what he can to get Job to turn, God is saying here, this is what Satan did in his first attempt. He did try to incite and tempt God, but God cannot be tempted. So God did not respond to this tempting, to this inciting bait, we'll call it. Yes, he did allow Satan to uh, bring incredible, overwhelming anguish and suffering into Job's life, but God was already confident. He already knew Job would remain and retain his integrity. In fact, I would submit to you this is exactly why God allowed Satan to pursue and persecute uh, Job is because God was so confident in Job's calling and faith, he knew he would stay firm. It wasn't because he was tempted uh, legitimately by Satan and had to find out if Job really was legitimate. That's not at all what's happening. But he does use the word. The, the word is in the text. And I think it's the Lord helping us see the perspective of the Satan or of the accuser. It's a word used to help us see what Satan was trying to accomplish. I don't think it's a word letting us know what God actually experienced, because God cannot be tempted, and he's not, he doesn't tempt anyone. But it is a word to give us a sense of the environment and atmosphere from the accuser's point of view. Lastly, uh, many people often wonder, like, when did this take place, or when was it written? Let's just tackle the first part of that. Um, the writing of Job uh, may not be quite as important as actually when it occurred. Uh, most people tend to think that the events in Job occurred pre-Moses, um, maybe pre-Abraham, maybe around the time of Abraham. Uh, he lived in an area... Uh, by which uh, it's called the land of Uz. Uh, Abraham had a grandson named Uz. Uh, so maybe there's a connection there, maybe there's not. Uh, but there does seem to be a consensus that the book is very early. Job lived in what is now northern Saudi Arabia. Um, back then, of course, it was called the land of Edom, but it's just called the East in the book of Job. So um, the fact that there's not a whole lot of tags or labels that are also common in the Pentateuch or even in Israel's historical writings. The fact that there is no sense of uh, connection to Palestine or the Promised Land, there's a lot of absence of all those things. It does seem that the book is early, uh, pre-Abraham or mid-Abraham, uh, and it was probably orally given at first and then written later. And many folks believe that perhaps Moses wrote it later after it was passed down orally. But I want to remind you that regarding the date and the author, the book doesn't say, and we simply don't know. Those are conjectures we make based on things we see in the text or even maybe some historical evidence we've gotten from somewhere else. But uh, either way, um, those are things we won't be dogmatic about. They can be interesting to talk about. So I would submit to you that probably it's an early book. Um, pre-law. Uh, he may not have known about Israel if he lived during the time of that. Um, if he lived pre-Abraham, he was a follower of Yahweh. We see this in how he sacrificed and worshiped to the Lord. Um, but again, we can't be dogmatic, but it does seem to be an early book, and it was probably given orally first and then transcribed, and possibly the one who wrote that was Moses. 
So some helpful things here about um, a couple of really important things in the text. And then, of course, the third one, uh, just fun to talk about. I trust you'll keep reading through Job in these weeks. Granted, we've got a lot of chapters to cover in a short amount of time. But I like the fact that we're taking the book in the sections um, and in the way it was written. I think that'll help us. It is a lot of coverage every week, I admit. But the Lord will be faithful to us. His Word will do the work. And I want to encourage you and myself, of course, to get up under the Word. Let's read through Job on a regular basis in these next five weeks. And let's watch God do what only He can do among us as we open His Word and feast on it.